This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Daily Show, The Young Turks, Media Matters, The Progressive, The Majority Report, Citizen Radio, The Rachel Maddow Show, The David Feldman Show, and The Onion Radio News. And a note for our more sensitive listeners, segments of this episode, including this sentence, contain profanity and may leave you feeling that the poor are being fucked harder economically than you previously believed. We've been talking a lot lately about the poor. What kind of a scam are they running on us? And how can we let them know that this incredibly watered-down gravy train is coming to an end? The answer, as always, is in Florida. Asif Manvi has more. Poor people. They spend their days protected, luxuriating in the social safety net. But who will protect us from these drug-addled moochers? Fortunately, some courageous politicians in Florida have answered the call. Florida Governor Rick Scott just signed a law that welfare recipients should get drug tests before they get their hands on that taxpayer-funded welfare check. The studies show that people on welfare are using drugs much higher than the uh, population. And that damning evidence helped the law pass by a two-to-one margin, with the strong support of people like Representative Scott Plakin. I think in any law that we pass, the first thing should be do no harm. By giving cash to somebody that has a drug habit, we're doing harm. We know how much poor people love drugs. Well, I wouldn't say that poor people love drugs, Asif. But if we are giving you money, we're just asking you to take this test. But the insinuation by legislators that all poor people are on drugs doesn't sit well with some. I refuse to take the drug test. It's casting the cloud over a population of people with no factual evidence. You sound like somebody who's on drugs. Uh, no, I'm not on drugs. Can you prove it? Here, be in the cup. No. If someone doesn't show back up for a drug test, the equation would be simple. They're choosing their drugs over choosing to get that money for their children. So your drug habit is more important than your family? No, my, my family is very important. I'm a father, I'm um, taking care of my disabled mother, and I'm studying to be an accountant. So after you pay for your child's food, take care of your mother, buy school books, how much money is left over for drugs? I don't do drugs. He can deny his habit, but not the success of the welfare drug testing program. How many people have failed? It's something like 2%. Only 2% of the people are passing. 2% wow. of the people are failing the drug test. Wait a minute. Rick Scott said that welfare recipients use drugs at a higher rate than the general population. Maybe he was high when he said that. The way that it works is they have to pay the approximately $30 for the drug test up front. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. You mean the poor people pay the $30 first? That's correct. And then the state of Florida uh, reimburses them if they pass the drug test. And humiliation for the 98% that pass is a small price to pay for a program that has saved Floridians negative $200,000. But some can't be bothered with statistics. This law is unconstitutional and it violates the Fourth Amendment. You're poor and on drugs. What do you know about the Constitution? I served in the United States Navy. You're a veteran? Yes. I took an oath to support and defend the Constitution. Any citizen, whether a veteran or not, should be happy to take the drug test. As a veteran, 
I would think that he would be concerned about the freedom of the taxpayers, the taxpayers that are working day and night, sometimes two and three jobs, and he won't even do this very simple thing to help his family. I just don't get that. So who pays your salary? Uh, the taxpayers of the state of Florida. I'm sorry, I think I'm going to need you uh, to pee into this cup. I'm not going to submit to a drug test because Asif, Asif is, has one in my office. Um, there was somebody who said anybody who's receiving hard-working Floridian taxpayers' money should submit to a drug test, and I believe that somebody was um, Representative Scott Plakin. Uh, if a law passed requiring legislators to do it, I'd be happy to. So would you be willing to be the first person to put that bill forward? Uh, well, this year I have all my bill slots filled, but, you know, we get six bill slots. So if you ask what's on the high priority of my list, that's not one So can I, can I say that you being drug tested is priority number seven? No, what I'm saying is priority 14 number eight. From, from now with what's going on, I'm not so even thinking I'm about what So I'm going to put you down for, go yourself. That's what you're saying to the Florida taxpayers. But this low-level junkie wasn't the real score. To take down this cartel, I had to get the kingpin, Governor Rick Scott. But the money that went through the legislature were not. Governor, uh, you benefit from hundreds of thousands of taxpayer dollars every year. So would you be willing to pee into this cup to prove to Florida taxpayers that you're not on drugs, you're not using that money for drugs? I've done it plenty of times. You would? I've done it plenty of times. Would you pass this forward to the governor? Uh, we can all turn around, it's fine. We can all turn around if he wants to okay. do this. It's a longer explanation, I can give it. Governor, I hate to keep harping on this, but would so you pee into the cup? Excuse me a second. Would you not what? pee? Okay, just a second. I'm, I'm going over here. You don't get to run this? Gary. While we wait for the governor's urine, a federal judge has temporarily blocked mandatory drug testing, but someone has to make sure Floridians are staying clean. You know who pays for this dog park? No, sir. The Florida taxpayer. That's who. I am going to need a urine sample. I'm on the case. President Obama has announced his new budget, and there's some good news and some bad news in it. First of all, here's a piece of bad news, and they brag about this all over TV over the weekend. For every dollar there is in possible tax increases, there's $2.50 in spending cuts. So there's so much more spending cuts, and somehow this is a balanced budget. Like, it's supposed to be a balanced approach, I should say, right? Like, hey, you know what, we raise tax on the rich, and then you guys have to take, you know, the middle class has to suffer a little bit too. No, the, even if President Obama gets his way on taxes, which there's no way he will, the middle class has to pay two and a half times more than the rich. So this is the thing that Obama brags about. And of course, the Republicans say is nowhere near good enough, right? 
All right, now, having said that, there are some good parts of the bill. Uh, defense gets cut by $487 billion. Don't be too excited by that, because uh, a lot of that is because they're winding down the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. So, you know, those victories are not exactly as they appear. Medicare cut, gets cut by $360 billion. Well, that's not really a good sign. They say it's not, it's coming mainly from providers and not the actual patients. That's better, I guess, but ultimately I'm afraid it's going to come from the patients anyway, so that's not good news. But the farm subsidies are taken out at $278 billion. That's very good news. Those farm subsidies were nonsense to begin with, and it's great to see them go. Now, they have some additional spending to spur on the economy here. That's also good news. $30 billion to modernize schools, that's great. $30 billion for teachers, police, firefighters, uh, to make sure that their salaries are kept up and that they're not fired. Uh, you got over $140 billion for research and development. That will help the manufacturing industry uh, and, of course, jobs. And then, finally, you've got $476 billion for a transportation reauthorization bill. Now, there's a great deal of problems in that bill, but at least it's an investment in transportation within the budget. So I guess, overall, that's good news. Now, how about those tax cuts or tax increases? I mean, we're supposed to raise money, right? In fact... They say, through these unspecified tax reforms, we will raise $1.5 trillion and use that towards deficit reduction. Okay, look, I'll take $1.5 trillion. It's not bad, right? Uh, that sounds good. And there is some good news about the tax uh, reform. So apparently, President Obama is saying that dividends should be uh, treated as regular income for people making over, for families making over $250,000. So instead of paying 15%, they'd be paying the regular top rate, which is 39.6%. Well, that makes all the sense in the world because dividends are basically, you know, when you take money and you invest it, you press a button, and it gives you a dividend back at the end of the year, depending on what stocks you bought, et cetera. It's, it's not like you put on a hard hat and you go to work and then it's... So why should it... It's not that there's anything wrong with making dividend income. It's that there's no reason that they should be charged a much lower rate of 15%. So if he can get that through, that would be terrific. I'm a little skeptical that he will, but at least he's proposing it, so that's a good thing. Now, that would raise over $206 billion in extra revenue. And there's another 3.8% tax on unearned income for couples earning over $250,000 because of the health insurance plan. That's also a good thing. He's pushing for the Warren Buffett rule, which would mean any money over a million dollars would get taxed at a minimum of 30%, no loopholes. That would be great. And then for private equity managers, basically this idea of carried interest, they would go up from 15%, which is outrageous again, to the regular tax rate according to their bracket, which is of course a top bracket. So that's all the good news. Now you want to hear the bad news? they would lower corporate taxes. Now, wait a minute. The, the thing is, we're trying to fix the budget, right, and, f and lower the deficit. If you lower corporate taxes, you will increase the deficit. So why is it part of this deal? Well, it's part of this deal because it's what the business community has always wanted. It's part of a compromise that President Obama wants to do, because he always wants to do compromises. And he needs to raise money for his campaign. Oh, did I say that out loud? So, this morning, Jim Cramer goes on Morning Joe. And before I had read the details of the budget, I thought this was curious, because here's Cramer 
saying that the business community all of a sudden is kind of interested in Obama. Let's watch. Business leaders, I find, really like Mitt Romney a lot, and they get him. But they're right. alone. But, well, business leaders see that he created some companies. Business leaders recognize that he would encourage hiring. But I've got to tell you, no one's not as enthusiastic as I thought they would be. And people are starting to talk about Obama. You're saying even in the business community? No, they, they used to be, but now they feel that, well, hold on, it's a social issue thing. We don't really care about that. Some of our wives, some of our husbands care about social issues. Right. That's not the focus. The focus is job creation. What happened to that debate? All of a sudden, the business community is interested in Obama again. That's really interesting how that works when he said he would lower corporate taxes. That part of the proposal is apparently going to come out later in the month. Inside uh, administration officials confirming it. What is it going to go down? It's going to go down from 35 to what they say is the high 20s. Of course, the Republicans want to go down to 25%, so my guess is it'll be closer to 25%. Funny that in the midst of all of these cuts, including by a two and a half to one margin, if you believe them, and all those tax increases go through, which I don't believe for a second, the middle class gets hurt the most. But look at that, corporations win again. Huh, I wonder if unlimited corporate spending is having any effect on the politicians. This is the Media Matters Minute. I'm Tori Brown. Following the Republican strategy, Fox News is again blaming the Obama administration for raising gas prices, a claim that has been repeatedly debunked by energy analysts. But back in the summer of 2008, when the average U.S. gasoline price hit a record high of $4.11 per gallon, Fox was singing a different tune about President Bush. The facts are, as you suggested, no president has the power to increase or to lower gas prices. Those are market forces. It really is tough for this president, I have to be honest with you, because he really does not have any control what's going to happen with the markets and with the economy and with oil prices and supply and demand and gasoline. It really is out of this president's hand. The only thing we can do is start to use less energy. Next time you hear a politician say he or she will bring down oil prices, understand it's complete BS. If Americans want lower gas prices, cut back. Obama's getting a bad rap for the rising gas prices at the pump. The increase largely is a result of hedge fund traders and other speculators betting up the price of gas. They're doing so for a couple of reasons. First, to take into account the possibility that Israel might bomb Iran, which could greatly disrupt the flow of oil from the Mideast, sending prices higher. The Obama administration appears to be urging Israel not to take this reckless action, but it's still on the drawing boards, evidently. And second, the demand for oil keeps escalating because of the booming economies of India and especially China, which used to be a net oil exporter until the last decade. And finally, gas prices are up because our own economy is improving, and speculators figure that companies and consumers both will be using up more oil as they spend more freely. It's ironic that Obama's being blamed for rising oil prices when they stem in part from the economic recovery he helped midwife. But Republicans will blame Obama for anything. They'll probably say it's his fault that there's a late winter snowstorm. Keep your shovels ready. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. I 
hope you enjoyed this show, but also consider it a valuable tool for not only aggregating, but more importantly, amplifying our view of progressive politics in the world. So if that's true, I ask you to support this work by becoming a member of the show at whatever level you're able, as anything from a basic leftist up through the ranks of socialist, communist, Satanist, or even the most reviled level of support, George Soros. I produce 11 episodes a month of fearless coverage on all the hot-button issues we face, maintaining a rock-solid schedule. So if that sounds worth supporting, please consider signing up to donate as little as $5 a month or even $55 a year. Members also gain access to bonus audio and video content that doesn't make it into the show itself. So for a concrete way to support a strong progressive voice, please visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Forty-nine state foreclosure fraud settlement is rumored or reported to now be finalized. Why 49? Well, Oklahoma stayed out of this deal, which essentially allowed the banks to steal, cheat, and lie kick people out of their homes at the cost of less than $2,000 per person. And Oklahoma stayed out of the deal because the state's attorney general, Scott Pruitt, did not believe the banks should face any penalty. But I don't want to focus on Scott Pruitt because the fact of the matter is this deal is a ripoff for the American public. We should be frog-walking the corporate CEOs and managers and board of directors of these banks, they have engaged in systemic fraud. They knew they were doing it, and they covered up some of their fraud by perpetrating more fraud and forgeries. David Dayen says, uh, banks sliced and diced mortgages, traded them with little regard for the rules following land recording or securitization. They set up these uh, companies called MERS to circumvent literally hundreds of years of property law that even predate the, the, the existence of this country in terms of having to uh, meticulously record the transfer of property rights. So they realized they did this, and when it came time to foreclose on these people's homes, how were they going to get around it? They hired people at $11 an hour to come in and sign affidavits saying that they had seen the chain of title and that everything was kosher. And not only would they have people lie in these affidavits, they'd have them sign a fake name. When you are signing, when you are paying someone to sign a document that's going into court and you tell them not only to lie about what the affidavit says, but to sign someone else's name, a made-up name. That seems to me to be prima facie evidence that you are committing a crime. You are knowingly lying to a court, deliberately. You are also instructing someone to commit a crime of forgery and fraud.
these robo-signers, and we call them robo-signers so that we don't call them fraudsters or con men and women, liars, signed hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of these documents. Um, in addition, according to David Day, an investigations uncovered massive servicing abuses, including illegal fees charged to borrowers so that they could make more money when they lent money to these people, failing to honor previous settlements where, the, where they were uh, working out loan modifications and then ended up foreclosing on the homes. So in other words, they would tell people, don't pay your mortgage because we will uh, give you a loan modification. And then they used the fact that they didn't pay the mortgage as uh, a claim as to their right to foreclose on these people because they make more fees on foreclosure. $25 billion divided up several ways is the reported uh, settlement. $3 billion will go towards refinancing for current borrowers who are underwater on their loans, as well as short sales. $5 billion will go as a hard cash penalty to states, which can use them for legal aid services, foreclosure mitigation programs. Uh, David, uh, David Dayen has heard reports that some Republican states are going to use that to uh, fill their budget holes so it won't end up going to helping with this crisis in any way. The federal government will get a cash penalty as well. Out of that $5 billion, up to 750,000 borrowers wrongfully foreclosed upon will get $1,800 to $2,000 check if they sign up for it. In other words, you've been kicked out of your home. You've lost your home because you are a, um, you were pushed into a, a bad loan. You suffered uh, fraud in terms of their ability to foreclose on you. Uh, they had hidden fees or illegal fees. And now that you've lost your home, now that you've been kicked out, now that you've, been, you've hopefully found a, another uh, place to rent or you're living out of your car, here's $1,800. And the bulk of the money, $17 billion, will go to principal reduction credits for troubled homeowners. So this is important because you're going to hear there's a $25 billion settlement in some places, you're going to hear there's a $40 billion settlement in the other places. It's because $17 billion of this will have the purchase power of twice to 2.1 times of that. And this is what I mean. $17 billion will go to reduce the principle of people's mortgages. But they will do so by essentially the, the bank providing credit, not actual hard cash, just simply forgiving part of that principle. In the context of these uh, mortgage-backed securities. So, for these mortgage-backed securities, the write-downs, essentially, the credit that you'll have on your statement if you have a, a principal will be 50 cents on the dollar, will be under 50 cents on the dollar. So in other words, for every dollar you'll get, that gets paid to the banks for mortgage uh, pay down, they'll give maybe a buck 50 
or they'll give um, a buck seventy-five worth of principal reduction. Housing and Urban Development Secretary Sean Donovan believes this will be able to get between thirty-five and forty billion in principal reduction in real dollars out of the settlement. Um, second liens will be ten cents on the dollar. So there's added buying power essentially with these dollars relative to cramming down principal and um, uh, principal on both mortgages and home security loans. Um, but this isn't going to go anywhere to filling the gap. Eve Smith at Naked Capitalism has 12 reasons why you should hate the mortgage settlement. We've now set a price for forgeries and fabricating documents. It's $2,000 per loan. That $26 billion is actually $5 billion of bank money, and the rest is your money. It's money that the banks got from selling their uh, loans in the secondary market to Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, taken over by taxpayers. After the crisis, that $5 billion divided among the big banks wouldn't even represent a significant quarterly hit. Number four, that $20 billion actually makes banks second liens sounder. So this is deal is a stealth bailout that strengthens bank balance sheets at the expense of the broader public. If you make the first mortgage um, more solvent, then the securities that are secondarily based on those mortgages become more sound. Number five, the enforcement is a joke. The first layer of supervision in the, is the banks reporting on themselves. Past history of servicer consent decrees shows services all fail to comply. The cave in Nevada and Arizona on the countrywide settlement suit, those uh, suits have been um, essentially folded in to this uh, broader deal. The new federal task force were intended to be serious. The deal would not have been settled. So this also is a, a bad sign for that uh, federal task force. A deal on robo-signing serves to cover up the much deeper chain of title program. Don't get too excited about the New York, Massachusetts, Delaware, MERS suit. Don't bet on a deus ex machina in terms, and this is really sort of interesting, uh, because we've all been... Part of what we've been sold is the idea that Schneiderman is rolling the feds. Don't bet on a deus ex machina in terms of the new federal foreclosure task force to improve this picture much. If you think Schneiderman, as a co-chair, who already has a full-time uh, day job in New York, is going to outfox a bunch of D.C. insiders who are part of the problem, I have a bridge I'd like to sell you. And now we'll listen to banks and their significant uh, sycophant defenders declaring victory despite being wrong on the law and the facts. So 12 reasons to hate this deal. Um, I can't find a reason to argue with, with those 12 reasons. Step one. We write a check for $10 million, hand the check to a Wall Street bank, and ask them to make us a CDO. Step two. They create the CDO using risky stuff. Very risky stuff. Extremely risky stuff. Step three. Other investors commit hundreds of millions of dollars to the CDO. Step four. 
We bet against the CDO using a credit default swap. Step five. The housing market crashes. The CDO's value drops to zero. Our bet pays off and we make hundreds of millions of dollars. And before you can say step six, we're rich. We're gonna bet against the American dream. We're gonna be on the winning team. Purchase risky debt on a massive scale. Then place a bet that the debt will fail. Hundreds of millions for Magnetar. The economy collapsing like a dying star. No one will know till it's on NPR. And who cares? It's time to hit the town. This sucker could go down. The housing market's losing steam And all we gotta do To make our dreams come true Is bet against the American dream The following clip contains elements of sarcasm that may be too subtle for some listeners. Where are poor people supposed to live in the United States? Like, where are we supposed to put them? The woods. Uh, well, actually, yeah, uh, increasingly, they might have to start camping because uh, this is a series of stories. This one is from Reuters. Foreclosure abuse is rampant across the United States, according to experts. A report this week showing rampant foreclosure abuse in San Francisco reflects similar levels of lender fraud and faulty documentation across the United States. Uh and this is the incredible part. So this audit of almost 400 foreclose, foreclosures in San Francisco found that 84% of them appeared to be illegal. Jesus. So they are illegally kicking people out of their homes, which we knew, but we did not know how widespread the issue was. So some people might be like, how are they illegally foreclosing on people? Right. This is the story we were talking about a while ago uh, with the robo-signature fraud dealies. Right. Which was when people were getting foreclosed on, but the bank couldn't produce the original deeds or anything like that. They were like, it's somewhere. Which happens when banks and these huge uh, corporations like Goldman Sachs uh, start dealing with derivatives and like taking um, a mortgage and splitting it up and selling it to other groups and other banks. They lose track of the paperwork when right. they do this because they got away with everything. So they were like, well, why do we need to slow it? down and keep track of what we're doing right um so when homeowners are saying well where's the deed to my house now where's the original mortgage and stuff like that nobody can produce it so it's illegal to kick people out of their homes but the banks were sort of doing these robo signing deals where they were bringing in people who weren't mortgage experts they were bringing in like literally hiring people who were like hairdressers and stuff just to come in and start rubber stamping stuff so at no point did anyone know where the paperwork work so, actually was. Do we do we go after the hairdressers? <laughs> are they the, are they the problems? So eighty four percent that is bananas. So that was one of the stories I wanted to bring up. Um, so this is one level where poor people are getting fucked because they're getting kicked out of their homes. So at that point, poor people are told to go rent. Right. Right. You can't afford your own home. Go rent. So this is from BayCitizen.org. Thousands of people are expected to become rich in the latest Bay Area tech boom. And in San Francisco, these newly minted millionaires will receive a benefit originally meant to control the to help the poor and working class rent control. So now these like billionaires and millionaires are scooping up these homes that are rent controlled that were originally intended for poor people because. Right. 
rent control doesn't mean your rent never goes up. Rent control means your rent goes up every year, but it, it can't skyrocket. It can't go up like hundreds of dollars. Right. Um, so now these poor people can't even get access to, to buildings to, to rent. So Huffington Post follows up on this. America's poorest people are running out of places to live, according to a survey. In every state in the country, there are poor people looking for cheap rental housing, and in every state, there aren't enough units available, according to a report released Wednesday by the National Low Income Housing Coalition, a nonprofit organization. So here's what's happening in America right now. People are getting kicked out of their homes Mm -hmm. with these robo-signings that are illegal. Right. The government's doing nothing to stop it right now. They cannot find places to rent. Because of stuff like, you know, rent control going to billionaires. right. And there aren't enough units available. So where are poor people supposed to go in the United the States? Oh, woods. Were you not listening to me? <laughs> we could have saved like 10 minutes. <laughs> the woods. Well, who's going to give them the tents? The, they don't need tents. Jamie, they make so they're supposed to go out, sit of out of leaves. You don't know how to camp, do you? You put a leaves on your head. Nope. And that protects you from the rain. And you eat each other. You are describing a Lord of the Flies <laughs> type situation. I don't, what is that? Is that what happens? So is, is that a book? It's a book. It was also a terrible well, it movie. Like a good idea. Nope. It was. That's why they made a book about it, Allison. If it was a, if it was such a bad idea. Hey, Allison, I want to write a book. What's the worst idea you can think of? Okay, let's write a book about that. No, wrong. What happens is, hey, that's a really good idea. Somebody should make a book about it. Thank you. Case closed. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. This is the Media Matters Minute. I'm Danny Herrera. Radio host Rush Limbaugh went on a rant about how poor people are to blame for their own poverty. It's not just a few people who do very well in this country. It is loads and loads of them who traditionally have done well in this country. And in many cases, speaking bluntly, the people that don't do well have only themselves to blame. And those who have no control over themselves are the ones we help. His staff quickly recognized the controversial nature of his remarks and tried to warn him, but he plowed through nonetheless. I don't care. I don't care what kind of trouble I'm in. I've been doing this 23 years. They can't get me in any more trouble than they tried to put me in now. What what am I in trouble for now? The only limits in this country on anybody's advancement is their own limitation that they place on themselves. The, 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 The greatest obstacles that people face are those put in place by them until this guy came along. It did not get much pickup yesterday because it was a Republican primary day, but President Obama gave one of those speeches yesterday that is going to go down in the history of President Obama speeches. I've got 
gotta admit, it, it's been funny <laughs> to watch some of these folks completely try to rewrite history now that you're back on your feet. The same folks who said, if we went forward with our plan to rescue Detroit, you can kiss the American automotive industry goodbye. Now they're saying, we were right all along. Or, or you, you've got folks saying, well, the real problem is what we really disagreed with was the workers. They, they all made it out like bandits. That, that the saving the auto industry was just about paying back the unions. Really? I mean, e e even by the standards of this town, that's a load of you-know-what. You know, you, uh, about 700,000 retirees had to make sacrifices on, on their health care benefits that they had earned. A lot of you saw hours reduced or pay or wages scaled back. You gave up some of your rights as workers. Promises were made to you over the years that you gave up for the sake and survival of this industry. It's workers, their families. You want to talk about sacrifice? You made sacrifices. This wasn't, a, this wasn't a, an easy thing to do. Let me tell you, I, I, I keep on hearing these same folks talk about values all the time. You want to talk about values? Hard work, that's a value. Looking out for one another, that's a value. The idea that we're all in it together and I'm my brother's keeper and sister's keeper, that's a value. Here's yesterday. Beltway, common wisdom right now is that Republicans are best off for 2012 if they keep everybody talking about the economy because President Obama doesn't have anything to say about the economy. That speech was yesterday morning, the day the Dow hit 13,000, then today the Nasdaq hit its highest level in 11 years. I know it's not the common wisdom, but if I were a Republican, I might pick God, guns, and gays over talking about the economy right now. I might even pick anti-contraception as my platform instead of the economy right now. Okay, what, what do you think is the best thing, of, the thing about the show that is best and most appealing to, to somebody who listens or watches? Because we cover everything and we do it well. <laughs> Why do you think people watch the show? I think that it's a completely different angle. I don't think it's about being expansive or up-to-date. I think it's 99% of media that's out there is giving one story, it's giving a particular point of view, and it's also not covering certain stories. So I don't know that it's about being up-to-date or expansive. I think it's, it's a well, non- Well, that's what I said. We cover everything. Well, we don't cover everything, Lewis. How could we cover everything? We cover eight to ten stories. Everything important, pretty much. Well, if that doesn't make you curious, I don't know what will. Check out The David Pakman Show at davidpakman.com. Republicans love to talk about how high the U.S. corporate tax rate is and how bad that is. But when you examine their argument, their case falls apart. They predicate it on the fact that the current tax rate is 35%. But because of creative accounting and loophole sneaking, the actual rate the corporations paid last year was just 12.1%. Many of our biggest companies paid nothing in corporate taxes or even got rebates. 
Take GE, for example. In the last decade, it raked in $81 billion in profits, but paid only 2.3% in income taxes. And over the last five years, it got $2.7 billion in rebates. So for all the crying over how high the corporate tax rate is, it's pretty much a myth. As Robert Reich points out, corporate taxes used to account for one out of every $3 of federal tax revenues back in Eisenhower's day. Now they account for only one out of every $10. And no less a knowledgeable person on corporate profitability than Warren Buffett himself says that corporate taxes aren't strangling American competitiveness. We don't need to lower corporate taxes. We need to close the loopholes so they start paying their fair share. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. Well, a man with dirty dreads, he steps around the corner. He asks me for a dime, a nickel or a quarter. I don't have any chains, so I'm stepping along. But as I'm walking past, he sings to me a song. These are holes in the bucket. Deal, Eliza. Glory to God. These are My wife said we were having dinner tonight, uh, and she, we were talking about the, you know what they're doing in Greece right now is that they're really implementing austerity even worse than England. In fact, I was watching a thing today where there's soap, soup kitchens in, in Greece again, and it's uh, they're, they're interviewing one guy who's what they call a pensioner. He's retired. He's on a pension, and he hasn't received a pension check in five months. And so Steph says to me, how does that happen, Jimmy? Well, how could they get to that point where, the, how could they get a trillion dollars in debt of a small country like, because the, all the while they were getting in debt, there were bankers making money off of it. And so now when it is finally, the bill has come due, the bankers don't pay it. It's the retired people who pay it. It's the students who pay it. They're lowering the minimum wage in Greece. So the bankers made all the money by getting Greek, Greece into debt and they're, and they're investors did not take a haircut. So the investors in Europe are not taking a haircut. The central bank is going to bail them out. But the austerity, so now Greece can't have a retirement. They can't have Social Security. They don't have a minimum wage anymore. They have no society left anymore. Frank? You want to go for the joke, or should I? <laughs> so the austerity in Greece means they're eliminating Rizzo? <laughs> no, they're getting the ass is what's okay. happening. Well, I think uh, how much more austere can it get in Greece? They're making food from grape leaves, for God's sake. <laughs> That's not even a food. They just took a leaf off a tree and wrapped it around some rice with a little lemon sauce, and that's their entree. Opa! Yeah. Well, you know, the, the thing with the Greeks is they haven't gotten the money yet from the IMF, the Eurozone, which is near the auto zone. My son works for the Euro Erotica Zone, which is not suffocating. He know, me. He um, know, <laughs> but the Eurozone, uh, the, the EU... It's it's twenty percent more suffocating. Actually. The EU is going to give them one hundred sixty billion dollars if they're willing to cut minimum wage by twenty five percent, lay off 50, 15,000 public right. sector workers. Mm -hmm. The exact opposite of what you should be doing. Raise raise mm -hmm. the uh, mandatory retirement age. Mm -hmm. Cut minimum wage. Mm -hmm. Right. Don't you understand one world government? The fear of one mm -hmm. world government. Can you understand Republicans who fear debt? Because once we owe money big time 
to China or to some international banking conspiracy, they are going to do even worse to us what Governor Walker of Wisconsin. If, what, if, what Greek, if, there were, if there were actually were Republicans who feared debt, I'd understand them. But yes. since none of them want to cut defense... And they want to increase the defense. While cutting taxes. While cutting taxes. They, the, the fear of debt that they supposedly have doesn't really they exist. Don't have a, they don't have a fair debt. In fact, the part of the, pro, the plan, David, was to, run, to try to bankrupt government, to try to run up the debt. That's why they started two wars and cut taxes at the same time. So now that we go, hey, we have to cut Social Security and Medicare and education and everything else. But and the only so time we've ever balanced the budget is under Democrats. Under Democrats. And let me just say one more thing about Greece. I only speak two words in Greece, in Greek. You know that. David, uh, ouch and relax. And <laughs> okay, but theoretically, I'm talking about. Uh, in practice, the Republicans have created more debt than the Democrats have. But when you talk to movement conservatives, and then the really paranoid ones who have guns, mm-hmm. the sovereign citizens who fear debt, the Ron Paul type. But they've only recently like it, it's like a whole new. Uh, new thing with them like being afraid of the deficit and the debt because for years and years they just let it go up and nobody ever complained about the growth of government no during during, during the bush eight years, years of bush yeah. well but no i mean in all fairness look i'm a i'm a lifelong progressive but ronald reagan came to office saying we have to reduce the debt i mean that is but a, he didn't and he did the opposite david right but but there is theory what we stand for and what we do those are two separate right. things and the Republicans have always stood for balancing the budget, which they haven't done. Right. I'm talking but about. It's, but they say that it's. But it's their way of, of accomplishing other things. It's like balancing the budget isn't their goal when they say balance the budget. I think it's, it's like it's a just catchphrase. Disenfranchising the, the, the lower classes yes. more. It, that's what the way I'm yeah. talking about. The gospel. It's like what the Catholic Church does to Jesus. I'm saying Reagan was Jesus. <laughs> 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 I'm saying that Reagan, what Reagan preached was correct, but what his followers implemented, they all, like any religion, they used it for their own nefarious ends. But theoretically, Republicans stand for paranoia and a fear of one world government. Yeah, but if anything, what's happening in Greece should encourage the Republicans to... Uh, to go the other way, to have some common sense, to incorporate and refinance education in this country, social systems in this country, things like that, a social safety net, if you will. Because in the long run, and this is what bothers me about these conversations all the time, especially with, especially Dyden and Republican, not Dyden but the, the real strident ends of the party, it, it, it's more profitable if you do it this way. It's more profitable if you have a good educational system. You're going to be having a much more educated workforce. You're going to have less crime. You're going to have less social problems. Blah, 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 blah. You're going to be saving money in the long right. run in terms of private education, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, and, and you take that with virtually every aspect of government, whether it's social services, education, whatever it is, with the right system in place that's funded in a, an intelligent manner and run well, without waste, whether Democrats or Republicans are just wasting money left and right in government right now. You cut the waste, you get these social uh, plans in place, and, and 
you don't have a Greece. This is what well, th- this is the warning shot over the bow, as far as I'm concerned, for Republicans. You want this to happen over here? Keep going, baby. Knock yourself out. You'll get to a point where you're going to have to tell people, now we're cutting minimum wage, so your crappy job that you barely have the hope of leaving at AutoZone or Auto Erotica Zone is now going to be even crappier. You know, it's just like, it's just smart business. You know? No, but it's not smart in the short term, which is all they care about. It's not smart in the short term. Short term, this guy, well, yeah. but it depends how short your term Quarter, is. I quarterly, mean, now in Greece, profits. in Greece, it is the short term. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. so for those people, the, the the people who have been saying, you know, people ten years ago in Greece, it's not. Yeah, they got their money and they're out. People two years ago got their money and out. People yesterday or eight, you know, eight weeks ago saying eh, it's not smart in the short term. This is your short term. Deal with it. Well, you know, I, your short term's on fire right now. You know, out in your garage, Greece fires are impossible. To put out. <laughs> They had. Remember when they those <laughs> riots are just really scary. Go ahead. I'm so sorry. the so the bank so the central European Central Bank came to Greece and said we're going to bail you out. But and, uh, and this is what's going to have to happen. All this crazy stuff. So the president of the country said, "Well, let's have the people vote on it." Right. Oh my God! <coughs> they they were like, "You can't have democracy. This is called finance. There's no democracy right. in banking." So they got rid of him. Mm-hmm. They got rid of him and replaced him with a freaking banker. And now they're doing these things. And now they're there's riots in Greece. So what Greece should have done is they should have defaulted. They should have said, no, we're not doing this. Now what? Now your bank goes bank. Now you're, there's problems because your investors aren't going to get paid. Now right. everyone is going to have to... Yes. Yeah, so yeah, but there's a blueprint for that, you know, with America and and how many people, whether it was post-war, whether it was attempts to get quote unquote democracy into various parts of of Africa, South America, wherever it was, people defaulted on on loans that the United States have given them for it's it's a tradition. It's right. like it's like a national holiday now. I mean, but now hey, somebody else default. So there's a blueprint in place, but they couldn't execute it, and, and I'm not sure why because they're That's a European the e- country it's or the EU. It's it, not. American. Well, right? also, I, from what I remember, when when the person said uh, we'll make the people vote on it, didn't like the stocks tumble oh, and immediately. Like big, yes, yeah. so it was looked upon the way it was interpreted in the media was was like this big disaster that yes. the, that the president or whoever oh my god was, yeah was, because if he goes against the bank you can't say you can't go against the banks and the banking system will be turned upside down because then what's what ha- what's going to keep Spain from telling the U- EU to go. Off and mm-hmm. what's going to keep every other country right. that goes bankrupt from telling them to go f themselves? So now they have to impose this. They get rid of democracy. They literally got rid of democracy in Greece, and they imp- the banks are imposing it. So all those quotes we've read all our lives about Thomas Jefferson warning us about the banks taking over, and and if the all those quotes are real, that's for real. And by the way, this isn't the first time that this has happened. This isn't the second time this has happened. This has happened. Oh, this happened in the 1800s. This happened. This happened in 1837. This the banks get control of the economy, crash it, and meanwhile they all get rich in the process, and then you have to, working people have to pay for it. This happens over and over, and, and Roosevelt was the only guy who stepped in. Don't point your finger at I'm pointing it upwards at, at Roosevelt. He's up there, upstairs. And Roosevelt was the only one who was able to stand up to the banks, and that's why my right. theory is it takes a rich guy to stand up to it's the banks. You're saying Roosevelt is in heaven, so I'm assuming they have, they have a ramp. <laughs> The 
the mission of this show is to aggregate and amplify the best voices of the truly liberal media, and now you can play a critical role in helping fulfill that mission. I pick out the best clips I hear to share with you, and now you can do just the same thing extremely easily. Now available at bestoftheleft.com, each clip I play is made available individually with simple buttons that allow you to share your favorites on your networks through Facebook, Twitter, by email, and beyond. By myself, I can amplify this content to thousands of people, but collectively, we have the potential to reach millions. No kidding. Become your own media activist by taking one minute to share your favorite content a couple of days each week, help more people plug into the truly liberal media, and be an integral part of this extremely virtuous cycle. Thanks so much for your help. It's The Onion Radio News. The World Bank forecloses on the world farm. This is Doyle Redland reporting. After years of sending threatening notices, the World Bank has issued letters of foreclosure on the world farm, a 64,000-square-mile plot of arable land in Dodoma, Tanzania. World farmer Mwana Mazuka, who provides wheat, cattle, and goats to much of the Eastern Hemisphere, responded to reporters as he angrily waved a pitchfork. This uh, farm has been in my family since Zanzibar was owned by British. I'll be damned if I will let some World City creditors get their grubby hands on it. In spite of Mazuka's protests, World Bank representatives say the World Farm auction will take place on March 22nd, and everything, including 672 million chickens, must go. Doyle Redland for The Onion Radio News, online at theonion.com. Today, Newt Gingrich says that President Obama is a weirdo. He says he's weird. And maybe what we ought to do at Newt.org is we ought to get t-shirts <laughs> that say you choose. Oh, yeah, Newt, yeah. drill here, drill now, pay less. Barack Obama, have algae, pay more, be weird. For Newt Gingrich to call somebody else in politics weird, it's like watching a python digest itself. It's, it's inside out. It's not possible. By the end of my second term. <laughs> we will have the first permanent base on the moon, and it will be American. But Mr. Moonbase has now pivoted to make his presidential campaign all about energy. And his line is that the president is a weirdo on energy. This is kind of a Republican thing now. I think the American people realize that a president who's out there talking about algae, algae, when we're having to choose between whether to buy groceries or fill up the tank, is the one who is out of touch. This guy is so out of his league and they just throw out there, I'm looking at algae, isn't it? 
It's, it's, it's patently absurd. In, in a sane world, this guy would be laughed out of office, not voted out. What those Republicans and the talk show hosts there uh, find so hilarious is a speech last week where the president talked about how high gas prices are uh, and his overall energy approach. Last week, the lead story in one uh, newspaper said, gasoline prices are on the rise and Republicans are licking their chops. That's, that's a quote. That was the lead. Licking their chops. Only in politics do people root for bad news. Do they greet bad news so enthusiastically? You pay more, they're licking their chops. And you can bet that since it's an election year, they're already dusting off their three-point plan for $2 gas. And I'll save you the suspense. Step one is to drill and step two is to drill. And then step three is to keep drilling. Drill, baby, drill. Nothing brings back the 2008 campaign like drill, baby, drill, right? Republicans totally thought they were going to win the presidency in 2008 with drill, baby, drill. Drill, baby, drill. Drill, baby, drill. <laughs> drill, baby, drill. Because energy produced in America is security for America. And it is jobs for American workers, jobs that can't be outsourced. Let's drill, baby, drill, not stall, baby, stall. Let me make it very clear. Drill, baby, drill, and drill now. We will safely drill for the billions of barrels of oil that we have underground, including safely developing offshore resources. We'll drill here and we'll drill now. Now you can chant. Drill, baby, drill. Republicans definitely thought that John McCain and Sarah Palin would beat Barack Obama and Joe Biden with the drill, baby, drill message four years ago. And this year, they think they can win with that message, too. And so you've got uh, Rick Santorum brandishing an oily rock during his concession speech after losing Michigan and Arizona. Uh, you've got Mitt Romney today saying the president, President Obama, is doing all he can to stop oil production in this country. This is a president who's not been helping this situation. And, and, then, and then he takes his EPA and uses them to try and stifle the, de the development of oil and gas in this country. In a classic case of Mitt Romney's bad timing, uh, he tried out that allegation today on a day when the news headlines on this subject all looked like this. U.S. was net oil product exporter for the first time since 1949. We are exporting oil now. We are exporting more than we import. Also up with Chris Hayes provided this handy chart this past weekend about U.S. oil production under Presidents Bush and Obama so far. Remember, the Republican line here is that President Obama won't let there be any oil production in the U.S. That's the line. They also find all this algae business hysterical, that any administration's policy would involve anything other than oil. If we're going to avoid high gas prices every single year, with a lot of politicians talking every single year but nothing happening, if we're going to avoid that, then we've got to have an all-of-the-above strategy that develops every single source of American energy. Not just oil and gas, but also wind and solar and biofuels. Biofuels. That's what the Republicans say is hysterical. That's what Newt Gingrich says is weird, and that means something coming from Newt Gingrich. Algae, right? Biofuels, biomass. This stuff is just crazy. No Republican would ever support anything so dumb. John and I will adopt the all of the above approach to meet America's great energy challenges. Those hundreds of
of billions of dollars being recirculated here in America, that means harnessing alternative sources like the wind and the solar and the biomass and the geothermal. The Sarah Palin, John McCain energy policy, the algae as fuel idea that has had Republicans like Mike Pence and Daryl Issa and Senator Mike Johans requesting Department of Energy grants to research algae as fuel. In an election year, that's got to be all crazy Democratic nonsense. Drill, baby, drill. Drill, baby, drill. So I've been a listener for about six months now, and I'm really loving your show. I'm calling to let you know a couple things. First, I'm ecstatic that you're featuring the war on women. As a woman, I'm constantly overwhelmingly frustrated at the way in which women are treated, both by our culture in general and especially by our supposed representatives. It seems to me that they never really truly are representing me or the rest of us citizens who just happen to have two X chromosomes. Unfortunately, while the war on women finally has a name and is getting some attention, it has been going on for a really long time, and it's not just being raged by the right wing. Media pundits and politicians that are supposedly leftist or even progressive use incredibly offensive terms when discussing women with whom they disagree. I want to direct your attention to an article on thedailybeast.com, and it's about Rush Limbaugh's apology, although I personally wouldn't call it an apology. And basically it, it says that men who are supposedly on the side of women are also finding ways of bashing them. What's more, even when someone says anything to draw attention to the fact that someone who is running for office or addressing Congress, whatever, is a woman, for instance, Newsweek's portrayal of Michelle Bachman as the Queen of Rage, instead of, you know, like, just one of the presidential candidates who is enraged about something, drawing attention to the fact that someone is a woman, they're a woman, that woman is relegated to the position of other. This kind of status goes back to the ideas of Simone de Beauvoir, um, and it's still really permeates our culture today. So that brings me to my next point. Because we as women are the other. For example, mankind always means humankind and is all-encompassing. But womankind never, ever means both for all genders. It just means women, right? So anyway, because we're the other, when we're portrayed on television shows in a negative light, when negative stereotypes are recycled and reinforced, that position of other becomes all the more solidified. So the question of feminist blogs talking about television shows, you were right on when you said that, well, said, because, because really it's, it's those negative stereotypes that just feed into this idea of like what women are and how we are different and the other and, you know, crazy or something. So take my Michelle Bachman example. I'm from Minnesota and lucky enough to have her as my congresswoman. I can't stand her and I cannot stand her policies. But I'm so incredibly furious that she didn't have an actual adequate shot at the presidency precisely because she was a woman. You had a clip a while back of another talk show talking about Bachman and claiming that her portrayal by the news media was sexist. The correspondents on that show laughed it off, and yeah, I understand laughing at her, she's easy to laugh at. But the sexist part, that was absolutely and 100% true. Michelle Bachman today implied that the media's coverage of her campaign is sexist. The candidate told a rally in New Hampshire that she believes that as a crazy woman, she's had to deal with scrutiny she would not face if she were a crazy man. The movie cover, The Queen of Rage, would have never, ever been an acceptable portrayal of a male presidential candidate. Like during debates when moderators would announce candidates, Ron Paul was the libertarian candidate, Newt Gingrich was the anti-Washington candidate, Romney was the this or that candidate, but Michelle Bachman? She was the woman candidate. Whatever your opinion is of her, and let me reiterate, 
Mine is very, very extremely low. You should not help but feel outraged that this is how our country treats women. Not as people, but as the other, as women. It's an important difference, and one that disillusions hundreds, thousands of girls who may one day want to run for office or being taken seriously as something other than a pair of tits. I hope that this helped clear things up, at least a little bit. Have a good day and keep up the great show. Oh, and my name's Eliza, again, St. Paul, Minnesota. <laughs> Bye. Hey, Jay, this is Joe calling from all the way from uh, Nanjing, China. Wanted to send a brief message. Uh, there's been a big uh, mess with uh, Rush Limbaugh lately um, about him calling Sandra Fluke a slut and a prostitute. It's been on Jon Stewart and been on uh, the Colbert Report and everywhere in the newspapers, and he's losing supporters and advertisers. A Georgetown University co-ed told Representative Nancy Pelosi's hearing that the women in her law school program are having so much sex they are going broke. Apparently, four out of every ten co-eds are having so much sex that it's hard to make ends meet if they have to pay for their own contraception, said Sandra Fluke's research. Can you imagine if you're her parents... How proud of Sandra Fluke you would be. Your daughter goes up to a congressional hearing conducted by the Botox-filled Nancy Pelosi and testifies she's having so much sex she can't afford her own birth control pills. What does it say about the college co-ed Susan Fluke? who goes before a congressional committee and essentially says that she must be paid to have sex. What does that make her? It makes her a slut, right? It makes her a prostitute. But on your last um, episode, uh, the Jimmy Dore show was talking about Rick Santorum in, at the CPAC convention. And uh, they were talking about uh, his family, and that he has seven kids, and that they were all up on stage. And then they started talking about his eldest daughter, who they found attractive. By the way, his oldest daughter looks like a hot Ruth Buzzy. She is I gotta a tell you, slice I think of gorgeous. She's really attractive, yeah. right? And she's got such a nice smile. I felt so and sorry for her. And I hear she really her. puts out. I, I, <laughs> I felt very sorry for her to standing behind her father, like giving that look. You know, like mm. you're, she's stuck with that father, mm. and he's just shaming her sex, mm. sexuality, yeah. and not and telling oh, her. Oh, the damage is done. She no, He no longer has to shame her. Oh, she's she's, she's self-shaming at this point. I, I know. And one of the um, people on the Jimmy Dore show said, and I hear she really puts out. See, if we're going to, you know, show our righteous indignation towards Rush Limbaugh about calling somebody a slut and a prostitute, and then we have a progressive podcast basically doing the same thing, but not being called on the carpet for it because they're not as highly recognizable or popular as Rush Limbaugh, I think it demeans and lessens everything that we stand for. So, you know, really when it comes down to it, uh, bottom line, if we're going to hold, you know, Republicans or conservative radio talk show hosts to a, a certain standard, then you know what? We got to do better ourselves. So that's just my two cents. Thanks for your show, Jay. I love it all the way here in Nanjing, China. It keeps me alive. Keep it going. Peace.
Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. So huge thanks to Joe for calling in with this voicemail today. Uh, Until I heard it, I wasn't sure what I was going to talk about on the show today, and so clearly I would like to discuss uh, this issue. You know, so if you if you missed the voicemails, the last one that just played, he's comparing Rush Limbaugh's recent comments uh, to uh, comments made on the Jimmy Dore show. And so to lay ground rules for this conversation, absolute ground rule is I did not find the joke from the Jimmy Dore show in question to be funny. I didn't find it offensive, but I also did not find it funny. So we'll start there and and then go on to say I do not find these two things to be comparable almost at all. I think that they are different in a a multitude of fundamental ways. And that being said, I still see where Joe is coming from. I I see the logic behind what he's saying. And it just so happens that I particularly enjoy dissecting comedy. I don't know why, but I do. And so I'll take the opportunity and, and do it in this case. So I, I remember where I was. I like I remember very clearly where I was, and I remember how I reacted to the joke in, in question from the Jimmy Dore show. And it, it was something like this. Uh, honestly, like I didn't think it was funny. I thought like yeah, is mildly in bad taste, but I knew what he was trying to do with it. I knew where he was going. I knew the target. I knew uh, you know I, I wasn't misunderstanding. I just didn't think it was that funny. And uh, so what I think needs to be clarified between these two comments is that Rush Limbaugh really was going after a very specific woman and really did call her a slut and a prostitute based on what she said, trying to make a point, apparently. And the joke from the, from the Jimmy Dore show, I believe that I understand the, the target of it, and I believe that he was targeting not Rick Santorum's daughter, but Rick Santorum himself. Because Rick Santorum's daughter isn't famous for anything. She's not famous for having a lot of sex or not having a lot of sex. She's not famous for anything other than being Rick Santorum's daughter. Whereas Rick Santorum is famous for being hung up on sex at a world-class level. That is what he's known for. And so the joke is the juxtaposition between the Santorum image and what would be absurd is if Rick Santorum's daughter were having a lot of sex. That would, that, that is a, you know, absurd to the point of comedic image to put in your mind. And so that is the joke that he was, he was going for. So the target wasn't the woman in that case. The target was Rick Santorum, who's not only a man, but a public figure who speaks out on this issue regularly in a way that the vast majority of people in America find incredibly offensive. So based purely on Joe's comments from his voicemail, although I feel like I I know where Joe's coming from on his comments, I feel like the point was missed a little bit, it was misinterpreted a little bit, resulting in a a really drastically false comparison being made. And uh, so, so based on those comments, 
I think I think they were a little bit misguided. If there is another way to be offended by that joke, I'm totally open to that idea. I mean, we could open a whole discussion about slut shaming, which I, I regret that I don't know as much about as I wish I did. Um, you know, but I'm sure there are, there's a whole world of ways to be offended by that joke. And if you know of them, please call in and let us know. You know, as I said, I wasn't offended, but, but in particular, I think the comparison to Rush Limbaugh is is really profoundly uncalled for. So those are my thoughts on that issue, and I just want to thank, as I as I have been, the uh, donors to my climate ride. I'm raising $2,400 for climate change organizations, and it just so happens as I open up the page today to look at who my recent uh, donors were. Uh, none other than Joe from Nanjing, China, <laughs> is the very next person on the list to be thanked. Uh, so huge thanks to Joe who who donated seventy five dollars while saying I totally can't afford this, but ride well and safely, my friend. So uh, huge thanks to Joe for not only his comments that gave me something to talk about today, but also for supporting my ride, and then also to uh, Howard and Maria who have also uh, donated within the just past couple of days, bringing the total to fourteen hundred and seventy nine dollars, otherwise known as sixty two percent of my goal of twenty four hundred dollars. So uh, huge thanks to everyone who has donated. If you would like to donate, the link to the donation page is right in the show notes of this episode, and uh, and all, all of those are very very much appreciated. So that's going to do it for today. If you'd like to support the show itself, of course, you can become a member or a one-time donor to the show. That is incredibly helpful. You can even just help spread the word to your friends and neighbors, especially by spreading the word of individual clips you particularly like through your social networks. All that can be done through the show notes as well. Stay tuned into the show between episodes by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And please consider donating your Facebook and Twitter accounts to us. That helps us spread the word enormously uh, where we can actually send a message, just one message per day maximum through your networks so we can actually reach out and, and promote the show in that way. And for details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every third day, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Fine, fine, black and white, you took Burning on a shining sheet The only maker that you want to meet A dying man in a living room Whose shadow bases the floor